You're listening to a podcast from the RSA. You can find out more about RSA events and projects and how to get involved with the fellowship by visiting our website, thersa.org. Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is uh, Stavros Yanuka. I am the chief executive of the World Innovation Summit for Education, uh, which is an initiative of the Qatar Foundation, uh, and I'm also a fellow uh, of the RSA. It's really my great pleasure to welcome you um, this evening. Um, just a few words, uh, a few minutes uh, on, on WISE. Uh, WISE is a platform established by uh, Qatar Foundation uh, under the uh, leadership of its chairperson, Her Highness Sheikh Hamza bin Nasser, um, to uh, catalyze and facilitate uh, collaborative research, dialogue, uh, debate, and purposeful action uh, on innovation in, uh, in education. I'm really pleased uh, that as part of our work, we were able to collaborate and to work together with the RSA, as well as the Innovation Unit um, and other uh, organizations who will be introduced later this evening, uh, to produce a series of uh, action-oriented research that is relevant both for policymakers as well as practitioners. Um, we're here to launch, formally launch one of those reports. Uh, it's a report titled Creative Public Leadership, How School System Leaders Can Create the Conditions for System-Wide Innovation. Uh, it was uh, co-authored by uh, Joe Hallgarden, the Director of Creative Learning and Development at the RSA, as well as Valerie Hannon, uh, the co-founder of the Innovation uh, Unit uh, in the UK and co-director of the Global Education uh, Leaders Partnership. Um, we're going to begin this evening by uh, me inviting Joe and, and Valerie um, to give us a short presentation in which they will share the insights from, uh, from that report. Um, we will then invite a panel, a distinguished panel of, uh, of experts um, who are sitting here, here in front, and I'll introduce them uh, later on. I will then invite them to join me on stage uh, to discuss uh, the report in the context of their own experience as researchers um, and practitioners. So with that, let me please uh, uh, invite Joe and Valerie. Thank you. Thanks, Douglas. Uh, I, even though I work for the RSA, I'm delighted to be speaking here at the RSA. I've chaired many of these events, but it's the first time they've actually let me talk, so uh, I'm delighted to be here. Uh, a few years ago, when surveying refugee camps in countries where serious conflict was coming to an end, researchers asked children to name the one thing they were most looking forward to when war was finally over. The overwhelmingly popular answer was simple, going to school. Read this research or watch the journeys in Pascal Plisson's recent documentary On the Way to School and you sense the deep, visceral need children have simply to be at school. This, of course, isn't just about learning. Schools are places to hang out, to make friends uh, and so on. Schools, uh, for, ch for most children, at least until adolescence, schools represent security, reliability, attachment and happiness in the face of any uncertainties that surround their home lives, their own identities and their futures. In these global contexts, RSA's own education mission to close creativity gaps in learning may feel like a premature luxury, but we think that an approach to change which is built on teacher empowerment, 
values the broader outcomes of creativity, agency and well-being and works deeply with civil society partners to support learning could help many education systems to improve far more rapidly. With our fellows, we aim to develop a truly global, creative community with a cause. Our report with WISE and the Innovation Unit on school system innovation is a first step to a more global outlook. The first question we asked on innovation was whether an education innovation journey was necessary at all. Imagine you have just been appointed as a minister. Pick a country, pick any country you like, and the new minister for education. In a world of competing, very short-term priorities, why should you focus on innovation at all? If, by sticking within its current tram lines, education systems were succeeding against the rigid criteria they set themselves, then the need for such change would be minimal. But the reality is much more depressing. A trebling of spending in most OECD countries over three decades has led to, at best, a stagnation in outcomes. In the global north, school improvement continues to struggle with multiple pressures, high-performing countries hitting performance ceilings and serious problems with young people's engagement. And in less established education systems, it's even more concerning. A recent study from the Brookings Institute showed that without a fundamental rethink of our current approaches, it will take another 100 years for children in developing countries to even reach the levels we have have achieved in developed countries, let alone go further. And within those statistics, there are deep and growing inequalities. So it's clear that the dominant models of change and reform at the moment aren't working. For over two decades, Western governments have pursued the classic constellation of competition, choice and high-stakes accountability to improve results. The logic of this model has one particular flaw. It's at heart doubtful of teachers' own agency to improve. Despite the language, and we hear it particularly in England, but everywhere of decentralisation and autonomy, the reality feels very, very different for most teachers. And we know that these dominant orthodoxies are being exported elsewhere. The, the, in many places, the, the ability of developing countries to successfully adapt the features of these westernised models is used as a criterion to receive aid. So we feel, in this context, the need for innovation, which is the development and exploitation of new ideas in education, is pressing. Of course, we know that school education systems across the globe are full of innovations. Uh, Some of them will be led by people in this room and by people watching online. Our report gives many examples, and databases such as the Wise Hub provide a myriad of case studies. But when we looked at this volume of activity, we spotted five particular weaknesses in the way that innovation appeared to be emerging. I will go through those quite briefly, and then hopefully there'll be time later to interrogate them further. First, looking overall... Innovation appeared to be equity light. Generally, any interventions that don't explicitly try to close achievement gaps do the opposite. They open gaps. And overall, innovators didn't focus sufficiently on equity in reducing those gaps. Second, for the reasons I outlined earlier, they're teacher light. Uh, Teachers are not sufficiently and often enough at the centre of those innovation processes. Third, too many innovations are evidence light failing to develop a really disciplined understanding of the impact they are having. Evaluations, and you may come across them all the time, are far too success and advocacy-focused. Four, the system seems replication-like, with far too little transfer of successful practices and an insufficient understanding of the need to support the human adaptation rather than the mechanistic adoption of these practices for them to succeed in different contexts. And finally, and hopefully Valerie will dwell a little little bit more on this, innovation seems to be transformation-like. There are pockets of educational innovation that are beginning to rattle those dominant discourses at the margins, 
but the immense resources of the state are still largely locked down into a model predicated on the values and assumption of a previous age. When it comes to innovation, the incremental and piecemeal is, piecemeal is overpowering the game-changing and revolutionary. So in conclusion, uh, we, we believe that we, if, we need, if we want to improve global education performance and reduce inequality, let alone develop a wider set of outcomes, then serious disciplined and radical innovation is required at all levels. And we argue that school systems should create intentional platforms for innovation that are long-term focused, equity-centred, teacher-powered and, above all, humanising. To help school systems think about where they are and where they, where they could be, we developed these nine possible next steps for action and we framed these step, steps around an emerging idea we are calling creative public leadership. This positions the state as an authorising and facilitative platform for innovation that draws on resources from both within and beyond schools. I really hope later we'll have time to interrogate these further, but I want to just leave you with one, one last idea which wasn't in the report and is even, even less formed in a way than the creative public leadership idea. Uh, I started my teaching career from a, a, a very short career doing work in outdoor education, and it was outdoor education that led me into teaching. Uh, recently I've been involved in quite a lot of programmes that support the arts and culture in learning. What unites both outdoor education and arts learning is the need for unpredictable outcomes. If you go for outcomes in those areas, and probably in other areas of learning, that are highly predictable, you're not going to get the results you want. And my fear is, although there is a huge... I can understand why school systems want to become more reliable, and there is a huge need for those systems to become more reliable... I worry that in that quest to become reliable, they are becoming too predictable in terms of what they expect and what they get from their learners and teachers. So the challenge and question to which I have no answer is how can we make our education systems more reliable without becoming too predictable? Well, good evening, everybody, and um, may I thank Stavros and the RSA for this opportunity to just say a little bit about our report and uh, to remark what a pleasure it was to work with Joe and colleagues at the RSA in what I think was a creative tension some of the time. I hope it was creative, anyhow. Um, what can I add to what he had to say? I can say two or three things, I think. Um, at Innovation Unit, we have the privilege, the real honour, of working with education systems and innovators and pra classroom practitioners across the world actually literally on every continent, who are engaged in the search for a different kind of learning, who are engaged in the search for learning which is deeper, um, more authentic, and fundamentally more engaging than that which the 19th century industrialised model, which we've all been saddled with, uh, is capable of producing. Notwithstanding the fact that this mass education system has provided us with, for the most part, a, a literate uh, population, set of populations, um, has it see, seen a number of terrific improvements. Nonetheless, it's failing us on many, many counts. And I hope you will take time to read the report and look at the indictment that we make of the existing system. So across the world, educators are asking, how can we create mass education systems at scale which engage learners really powerfully in the kind of learning that will not only equip them to learn a living, make a living in the 21st century, but also give them rewarding experiences intrinsically during their life at school. Because schooling ought not just to be some kind of dress rehearsal for life that comes later. It's a period of one's life, up until 16 or 18, which ought to be intrinsically 
engaging and wonderful. And for all too many students, it is not. So, as Joe said, across the world, educators are engaged in that, in that search. And we think that the kind of learning that's emerging has three or four characteristics. First of all, it's much more personalised. It stops treating students as one of a bunch, age-stamped, going through in groups of 30, um, one size fits all. And, of course, the technology that we now have available to us makes such personalisation absolutely possible. Secondly, it's much more connected. It's much more connected with young people's real lives and the kinds of lives that they and their communities can envisage. And it's much more integrated. It integrates all kinds of different settings. It integrates powerful technologies and integrates their passions and their interests outside of school. So if you look at, for example, the OECD's Innovative Learning Environments Project, um, loads of material of that online, if you Google it, you will come across legions of schools and other kinds of settings where educators are starting to create those powerful learning environments. The trouble is, they are the jewels in the rough. They are not systemic. The innovators and the educators doing them are often very lonely and find it hard to sustain. So our question in addressing this was, how do we take out these wonderful examples, those people who can, are, are demonstrating that it can be done, it can be done in spite of the conditions, and make them systemic? What kind of systemic conditions... What kinds of environments do governments and states need to create where that kind of innovation and that kind of development is the norm and not the exception? And that's what we've tried to do. So we've offered you nine practical steps. I won't go through them all, um, but maybe I'll pick out one or two that you might want to interrogate, as Joe said, in our discussion. And that's where the bulk of this evening's uh, time will definitely be spent. Um, we think that unless people build a case for change, a powerful case as to why things cannot and should not stay as they are, then we won't find the kind of discretionary energy and drive that will be needed to make the kinds of necessary changes. You see it all across the world. Unless there's a burning platform in the public services, as there is in health at the moment, actually, if you look at the health services across the world, people recognise that it is simply unaffordable to carry on, and actually insufficient, to carry on with the way our health services are constructed. And that's what's driving innovation. We need to do the same in education. We need to enable people to create the case for change which says, you know what, these outcomes are not acceptable, as Joe's already said, the inequity, and most of all, perhaps, the kinds of skills and dispositions that people are coming out with are not fitting them to make life in the 21st century. So the case for change needs to be made so that we are all on board with the direction of change and why there are valid alternatives. It's not that we're just aspiring to something that isn't created. If you look in the back of our report, you'll find all kinds of examples where it is being created elsewhere. So that case for change is critical. We secondly think, and I'll just take two more, that... Governments should desist from these waves of centrally driven short-term reforms. Just lay off for a while. Lay off and make some space for educators to show what can be done with the right aspirations and the right... It doesn't mean to say that governments should have no, no hand in education. Of, sure, of course they should. But we believe, as we argue in the report, that they can give the kinds of support 
the kinds of disciplines, the kind of expectations and aspirations which will give all this shape. And the other thing I would, the last one I'll draw attention to, I think, is deliberately to fund incubator programs for groups and collaboratives of schools to innovate on behalf of the system, to work together, this can be lonely work, this, to work together to create the kinds of pedagogic practices, the kinds of curriculum selection, the kinds of creation of great new programs of learning that can be demonstrator models for the system more generally. And again, in the back of our report, you'll find some instances of nations and states which are doing just that. So uh, we offer it to you with humility. We hope you will enjoy reading it. And most of all, we'd like to hear some of your observations tonight. Thank you very much. So we have a, we have a very distinguished panel um, this evening. Starting on my um, immediate left is Dr. David uh, Whitebread. He's the director of the Research Center on Play in Education, Development and Learning at the University of Cambridge. Next to him is uh, Janet Looney, who is the director of the European Institute of Education and Social Policy um, and formerly a senior member of the WISE team. Next to her is... My colleague, uh, Dr. Asma Al-Fadala, who is Director of Research at WISE. Um, and next to her is Martin Bayliss, who is the principal of Hollyhead School, which is a member of the RSA uh, family of, of academies. What I'd like to do is, is ask um, each one of you to um, react to uh, the presentation given by uh, Joe and Valerie and, and more uh, more generally, of course, the report. Um, and David, if I can start with you, um, you have authored a report, uh, which is part of the WISE series, on early childhood development. Now, a lot of what we've heard uh, from Joe and Valerie, and, and in fact, a lot of what's come out of the WISE research focuses very much on K-12 um, school systems. Your work focuses on what happens outside of that school system at an earlier stage. How do you think about uh, innovation and, and embedding innovation uh, within the education system? Okay, thank you. Well, good evening, everybody. Um, in, in a way, it seems rather odd to be talking about innovation in early childhood educational provision because we haven't had it very long yet in many countries. Um, but we do have, of course, quite a long tradition of early childhood education in, in the UK. Um, a num First of all, I would like to say how, um, in many ways, there are, there are so many ways in which the report about creative public leadership really um, resonates with uh, many of the things that uh, we wrote about in terms of the evidence of how you would create a high-quality early, child uh, early childhood education um, uh, setting. However, it's, it's very interesting. In my, in my own personal career, um, I started out as an early, uh, early years teacher back in the early 1970s when the, there was no government involvement at all in actually in education generally and certainly uh, none in early childhood. Um, and I went in as a trained professional 
with total autonomy about what I did, how I organized my classroom, the curriculum I taught to the children, what I thought was appropriate for them, how we did it, and so on and so forth. And over the course of my career, the government have got more and more involved, and uh, with the understanding about the importance of early childhood education, actually countries all over the world have got more and more involved in developing early childhood systems. The problem is the, the changes that have arisen from that, if anything, have been retrograde and have, 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 have gone possibly in the opposite direction to the one we've had indicated in, in the report. Um, and a number of fundamental, I think, mistakes have been made. Um, so in terms of what I would like to see in terms of innovation in early childhood education is that we start to look at the evidence about early children's development um, we know this is an extraordinarily important area to do, uh, to do well in. We know um, from James Heckman's work, for example, the famous Heckman curve that shows that for, if you want to invest anywhere in the education system, where, which is going to have the biggest impact, and of course it's the earlier, uh, the better. So it's really important to get this right. Um, and indeed people are starting to talk about not just making early childhood education available to all children all over the world, um, but uh, have high quality. Um, so my report actually was about, well, what would that mean? What would high quality early childhood provision look like? The first thing I should say is, is that it would actually last longer than it normally does. <laughs> so at the moment, children in the world start what I might loosely describe as formal schooling um, at the latest at the age of seven, but in many countries, I think overwhelmingly at the age of six, and of course in the UK and a few other countries even earlier than that. And all the evidence we have suggests that actually a play-based, child-centred style of, of learning and provision in those first few years of life is absolutely crucial. One of the mistakes that, that the UK government have made and that is now being replicated all over the world, sadly, for understandable reasons is, for example, the early introduction of teaching children formal literacy. Um, there's this notion about that the earlier is better. You know, the children, lots of our children aren't literate, therefore we need to start teaching them to read younger and younger. Actually, all the evidence suggests that starting, uh, starting teaching children formally uh, the skills of literacy, for example, uh, phonics, or, for example, the... the, the the names of, of letters and so on and so forth, is, entirely, is actually counterproductive. And we have good evidence now that in, in long-term outcomes, children who start being taught formally to read um, not before the age of seven actually finish up being more enthusiastic uh, readers uh, and they also develop higher skills in uh, text comprehension. So... The innovations I would like to see are an evidence-based approach to early childhood and, and, and also a recognition of how complex it is um, to deliver high-quality early childhood education to children uh, up to the age of seven. At the moment, and this is true all over the world, the least well-qualified uh, educators are the ones teaching our youngest children by a long way. The, 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 the sheer economic um, level of investment per child 
is lowest in our young children. And yet all the evidence suggests that actually that, that's the area where you need the most highly qualified, the most sophisticated, the most able teachers, and, um, and you need more of them, and you need them able to undertake to be involved in research, to undertake um, high-quality, sophisticated evaluations of their own effectiveness and so on. So there's a lot to do, some very serious things to do in this area. But if we were to do them, and if, if in, some, in some way organisations such as WISE can, can play a role in triggering uh, a complete revolution, really, in the way we think about uh, preschool education and play-based uh, work that introduces children to the skills of learning and, and the skills of working in a group and so on and so forth, um, we could make a very big difference. Thank you, David. Thank you. And I think, I think evidence-informed uh, uh, innovation is, is a central pillar of the, um, of the report that um, Valerie and Joe have, have authored, as it is indeed of, of many of the other reports. I think one of the one of the issues that that often comes up in these kinds of uh, discussions is inevitably someone asks the question, "Well, innovation is all well and good, but what are we innovating for?" Um, and with that, I'd like to invite Janet, who has authored a report on learning and well-being, really to come in and and, and tell us a little bit about um, innovation in the context of having well-being as. Uh, as an out- outcome. Okay. Uh, thanks. Uh, first, I should probably say what is well-being about, because it's a big word with many different possible interpretations. Um, in addressing the subject, we took the widest possible interpretation um, in order to, to really explore the subject in depth. Um, of course, it can mean physical and mental well-being. Um, it can mean well-being in terms of your academic outcomes. Um, and it can also mean well-being in terms of uh, having your rights as a child protected, um, as protected uh, under the UN Convention of the Rights of the Child, social, emotional well-being, and so on. Um, we wanted to explore these different trends and ways that people are researching the subject of well-being now. Um, in many ways, uh, the subject of well-being is not innovative at all. If we look back to the Socratic tradition or the other wisdom traditions in the world, it's the most traditional way of teaching there is. Um, So when we talk about bringing it back into education, it's like everything old is new again. Um, Really, how do we integrate that into something that has become very different in education, where we're focused on literacy and numeracy, employability, and that kind of thing? Um, and we've forgotten some of the essential things about helping children to um, become the best they can be. Um, well-being also means that we're not just thinking about children as future adults, that we're respecting them as they are right now in this life phase and helping them make the most of it. Um, I think one of the most universal themes across this is really in terms of the child's right to participate. Um, and say what well-being means for them because we don't really know as much. We've started doing a lot of well-being research on adults. We do surveys. We have all kinds of happiness indexes and so on. But they tend to be about adults. So asking children what does well-being mean for you because it's also something very different at different life phases is something that's important and hasn't been done enough. 
um, getting the children in there to, to answer those questions, to survey each other, to find out uh, what they think brings meaning to their lives and helps them engage in their learning every day is an important part of that. Um, the other reason that uh, we felt that focusing on the rights of the child was so important, well, not only that it's universally at least accepted formally on paper, is now uh, we are getting more and more interest in citizenship education and values education and what that should mean. And we're tending to do that in a top-down way, as we do with everything in education reform these days. Um, but bringing children in as part of their schools, as um, children who have voice and are able to participate in decisions that affect them makes a huge difference, they are starting off as citizens right away. Um, they're learning to listen to each other. They're learning to empathize with other points of view and realize that not everyone has the same point of view. Um, they're learning that their voices can be heard by their teachers um, and that they can have their rights respected and that they can respect others. Um, and that makes a big difference in the well-being. Um, it's also about having a broader view of what kind of learning outcomes we want. Um, as we were speaking about different policy aspects and what kind of outcomes and standards we should be setting, they tend to be very narrow little bits of, of um, reach this certain skill or qualification, but not sort of a holistic point of view. And so what we're asking is that we kind of bring that back in and have a broader view of the education and um, sort of view of, of what it means to become a, a full participating citizen and human being who is able to, to live across different areas of their lives. So. Thanks, Janet. If I turn now to, to Asma, my colleague, I think uh, what, what we know from, from Asma's work on uh, reform in the Gulf Corporation countries is that the Gulf has devoted significant resources um, over the last um, decade and a half, really trying to transform uh, education systems. Uh, and they've received some of the best advice there is out there internationally. Um, what we do know, though, however, is that, shall we say, those reforms have had mixed results um, at best. And I think, Asma, you've got some insights um, as to why um, education reform, education change does or doesn't work. Hi, everyone. In my report, I looked at the educational reform in Qatar, uh, Saudi Arabia, and UAE. Um, I looked at the objective of uh, system-level reform, um, looking specifically um, at the challenges that the implementers are facing, um, mainly teachers and uh, principals. So before going into detail, um, let me uh, clarify what I mean by reform. So um, it's kind of change um, in a school system. Um, so I looked at the teachers and principals' reaction into that change. So some of them resist the change, some of them early adopters as Joe and Valerie described in their um, uh, report. 
I found one, one of the policy recommendations is capacity building for the implementers of the reform. And when I read um, uh, Joe and Valerie's uh, report, um, I listed um, these specific roles for teachers and principals to implement um, any change or the innovation more effectively. So I will uh, mention some of them. Um, we are expecting teachers to be at the center of um, innovation diffusion. We are expecting them to be a risk taker, um, innovator, curriculum designer, um, taking part of the assessment for learning, um, expecting them to uh, adapt new ideas, be active in community of practice, and so on. So these are the ingredients of what I meant by capacity building for um, the implementers um, of any change. So I think it's really, if we are expecting um, teachers and principals to implement change effectively, we need to create the conditions um, to make it more uh, successfully. Um, I also want to mention about uh, the role of policymakers. One of the recommendations um, is to um, support them on the policy level, um, avoiding all the constant changes on um, procedures and policies, um, reducing um, workload. So my conclusion is if we are expecting um, teachers and principals to be change um, agent of change, we need to create the conditions um, that allow them to, to work effectively. Thanks, Asma. And I think that's, that's a, a very good um, segue for us to bring in the, the perspective of an actual uh, principal <laughs> and to sort of give us a reality check. Martin. Thank you. Um, I, I do feel a bit of a fraud that I haven't got a report of my own to discuss. Um, and, and my last school report wasn't a particularly good one. <laughs> but um, I, I, I really uh, welcome the, the report. Um, it's, I, I really have enjoyed reading it. 98 pages, Joe. Hell of an achievement. Thank you very much. But I, I, um, <clears throat> I, do, I do welcome it. And I welcome it for the reasons that have been teased out by... by the three esteemed uh, uh, presenters to my to my to, to my right. Um, I think it acts it acts very much as a template for for me as a school leader. I'm going to say something very controversial now. I don't, I don't believe that there are bad schools in this country. I think there are bad leadership teams, and I think that's this is where we need to make the real inroads into change in our in our in our system. And I think this report acts very successfully as a template. I'm very glad that Joe. Um, has mentioned in his, his, his introduction that there's a lot of good practice going on in schools up and down the country, despite the sort of negativity we hear about schools all the time in the media. And I think that's very true and something I wouldn't want us to forget. There are, there are many, many fantastic classroom practitioners working in our schools at the moment that need something like this to help them to develop. My, my own school, my own school, that's terrible for our school. Our school is, is in Handsworth in Birmingham, which is a, a, a very 
challenging area to work and, and a challenging area in which to, to, to try to work to the government's uh, demands and to jump to, to Ofsted's um, inspection regime. The average age of the teachers in, in the school are, are well less than 30. So if you like, I'm running, I'm running, we're running our own incubator program, Joe, to, to name-check one of the things in the report. Um, uh, and I think my, 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 my job and the leadership of the, of the school's job is to make sure that we protect those young teachers and enable them to do exactly as the report wants them to, which is to be to be less risk-averse than the government and Ofsted want them to be. Uh, and I, I guess that's, that's where I sit, and that's where this report is, is, is very welcome news. Um, it's, very, it's very easy to, to as, a, as a teacher, to, to get concerned, to get worried about the fact that you're not doing a good job. I don't know any great teacher in my school, and there, there are so many of them, that doesn't go home every night thinking, I've, done, I've not done as much as I could have done today. Um, and and, and my, my job is to make sure they go home at the end of a week, perhaps not every day, but feeling, feeling fantastic about what they do uh, and feeling valued in what they do, despite the fact that I know that fear is driving the system at the moment. And I think that's something that perhaps Joe uh, and Yvonne have intimated in the, in, in the report, that we need to get away from this risk-averse uh, uh, um, ethos that we have in, in education in this country where teachers, where pedagogues feel powerless uh, they feel sometimes that they are nothing more than machines in this huge exam factory that we're creating in the country so, so that's, that's where this report really hits, hits home for me um, there, there are some fantastic examples of great practice in the back I'd like to see more coming from the UK because I know they're out there and I think Joe knows they are too there, there, are, there are some there are system entrepreneurs out there, um, and we need to make sure that we make examples of those people and bring them up into, into the areas that we, into the, onto this stage, for example, or onto other stages where they can be uh, accredited and, and given credit for what they do. Um, <clears throat> we, we've, we've got to surely move away from this whole idea that all we're about is jumping to accountability's tune. Um, it's my job to soak that up, I feel. And it's the job of, 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 I guess, system leaders to make sure that the entrepreneurs in their, in their own schools can develop effectively because if we don't protect them, then, then, then we're doomed. And uh, I guess this, this, this report for me sits as a template for me to be able to do that. Uh, I, there's a number of highlights in it that I, I, I'd like to refer to, but I'm particularly drawn to some of the... Some of the the negative stuff that's in there, and that, that reporting on some of the things that some of the damage that's being done to, a, to, to, a, to our education system, this whole idea of narrowing and shallowing, that there's no curricular or pedagogical autonomy anymore. It's very easy to, 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 to accept that as the norm. But I think there are brave leadership teams out there that, that work against that. There are, there are brave, there are many, many brave teachers. And I I'm not a teacher anymore. I might do the odd hour a week here and there, but. Um, to keep my hand in, but I'm, I'm not. The real teachers, the real, the real heroes in schools are those that are out there that are working 95% of the time in front of classes of students, and those are the ones we need to make sure we incubate, that we protect, uh, we allow them to become the teacherpreneurs that, uh, that Joe and Yvonne talk about. Um, we provide, we as 
as school leaders, I believe, have to make sure that our environment inside the four walls or the, the gates of our, of, our, of, our, of our own school allow those people to develop and protect them where we can from this accountability, accountability culture that, that, is, that, is, that is really driving fear to the heart of the system and stopping us from, from doing what we know to, we want to do, which is to spend time with young people, giving them experiences that will help them to develop and not just preparing them for examinations. Thank you, Martin, and I think that's, um, again, for reminding us of the centrality. I mean, it sounds um, obvious, but the centrality of the teacher in, um, in this entire uh, process that we call uh, education, just to sort of uh, put in a plug for um, another wise uh, research report on the teaching profession and, and looking at ways to attract, develop, and retain the best teachers. You can find that on the, on the website along with all the other all the other reports. Great. So what we'll do now is we'll take questions. So with that, we can, we can start. All right. Thank you. Um, I'm Ron Glatter. I'm from, uh, connected with the Open University, the UCL Institute of Education, and Belmas, which is the British Educational Leadership Management Society. Um, I, I, everything that I've heard is tremendous. I sign up to it all. Uh, I think it's wonderful. Uh, it's exactly the kind of thing that I'm sure many people in this room are fighting for, uh, for all the time. The problem is, and a number of speakers have referred to it, David uh, Whitebread, I think, said things are moving in the opposite direction. And that is really the key thing. How do we deal with this business? Just yesterday, Tony Blair apparently said in a World Summit, you probably read it, um, in, in Dubai, the hardest thing is getting educational reform through. In other words, he was saying that the kind of thing that we're all fighting for is the roadblock to improving things. How do we get some kind of conversation going between policymakers and, you know, to say that we are not the roadblocks, this is actually what you should be thinking about? Thank you. Hello. Uh, my name's Olivia. I'm from a tech company called Next Jump. Uh, we recently adopted a school in New York where we provide support to the teachers, the parents and the kids. Uh, it's been really successful and we're looking to roll that out to the UK now and adopt a school in London. Uh, I'm just really interested to know what your thoughts are on like, how business can have an impact on innovation in schools, if you think it's positive or negative. Thank you. I'm uh, Christian van Neuerberg. I'm at uh, Henley Business School, University of Reading. Um, I'm, I'm passionate about coaching and education and uh, very supportive of what's been said here today. And uh, particularly interested in uh, you know, that case for change and how can we build in uh, uh, to the case for change, the well-being of both students and educators. Thank you. Maybe we can we can address those. And and um, Valerie, maybe I can start with you on um, dialogue with policymakers and and how do we engage yeah. and persuade policymakers that the education establishment, for lack of a better word, is 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 not the problem. It's not the roadblock. Well, it depends what you mean by the establishment, well, I guess. That's what... um, I thought the first and the, second, and the final question completed the circle, really. Um, it's great to have Ron Glatter here. I was, I'm a great hero of mine from the past. It was wonderful to, to know that you are um, still commenting in this kind of radical way and a, a voice that's been very important over the years. But your question, I think, joined up with the final one and with the first of our steps, because we won't get any shift 
unless we create the kind of critique which I think really will hit home. And for as long as everybody kind of signs up to the standards and performance and economic competitiveness narrative, as though that's the entirety of the rationale for how we organise mass education, we will get nowhere. And so we have to create a case for change which works at many levels. It has to work, first of all, at showing why it is that the kinds of schooling, and I, I, I use the word advisedly, not learning, that goes on up to 16 and 18, is not producing young people with the kinds of skills that even in the politicians' current terms will lead to a thriving economy. You only have to look at the most superficial data on what's happening on artificial intelligence and the structure of economies and the labour force to understand that we are in serious trouble if we carry on with the kind of direction that we have. And secondly, in terms of much broader objectives than simply economic competitiveness, looking at the quality of life and everything that Janet's had to say in her report, and indeed which David is striving towards in terms of young people's creating the foundations for good lives, then our systems fail. I mean, patently, kids are disengaged from learning in profound ways, notwithstanding the absolutely heroic attempts of teachers in some very good schools who try to manage you know, really very difficult circumstances. Because they are set in a, in a caged set of constraints that don't enable to work, them to work as real educators. So my point about all of this is that the case for change needs to be kind of created and prosecuted by a whole series of voices. And those voices, I think, um, lead me to the second question, which is about what about the role of edupreneurs, um, edutech people, businesses in general. And I think this, this will contribute hugely to the creation of the case for change because it's actually employers who are saying, you know what, the kinds of skills that young people are coming out with are not what we need. They don't fit the modern business. They don't fit the modern social enterprise. Can we not think again about the kinds of um, outcomes that we're looking for and the kind of rationale that underpins our system? So my own view is that educators need edupreneurs and other people in business to have much louder voices in both contributing to a different kind of rationale for how we run education, to be partners in the education process in much more profound ways, whether through mentoring, coaching, or other kinds of roles, um, but also bringing technology in a much more powerful way to bear on the kind of systems that we have. I don't know if you want to join Joan or monopolise the time sufficiently. Just on the, uh, the, the, the business question, really, I think Valerie covered the other parts brilliantly. Uh, it's brilliant. It sounds very interesting what you're doing in New York. Your next school shouldn't be in London. It should be in Hansworth, ideally, I'd say. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, just in terms of the role in business and education, two things, really. First of all, generally, I'd like, to, like businesses to complain a little bit less and create a little bit more. There's constant complaints about what schools aren't doing, and I'd really like them to get their sleeves rolled up in a very deep way to support learning. Secondly, in terms of the role of innovation, uh, I'd like them to, and this isn't just for businesses, it's for civil society organisations, individual entrepreneurs, cultural organisations and so on, I'd like them to develop innovations with teachers rather than develop innovations that somehow bypass them and do things for young people without involving teachers in that process. Thanks. Janet, anything to add on, on, on well-being and... Um, injecting that as yeah, a sure, burning sure. platform. Yeah. 
Um, well, this is sort of echoes some of what has just been said. Um, I've been very encouraged recently when I turn on the business news and I, I hear outtakes of business leaders saying that um, we're missing the boat if we forget that creativity, well-being, um, other things like that are also important for a thriving economy, um, that we've been too obsessed with science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and if we forget the other part, we're going to be in big trouble. Um, more specifically on the well-being aspect, um, I, I think that uh, we could think of the teachers and children as sort of parallel kinds of uh, ways of, of thinking about what works for, for, for them and, and what works for, for change. I, my, my organization works with a network called Children as Actors Transforming Society, CATS. Um, and children and, and adults come together in the summer from around the world to, to learn about advocacy for children's rights. And one of the things that people talk about is um, this is an area where children and adults um, learn to, to treat each other as competent partners. I think if we took that up a level and also saw that teachers are competent partners in the education world um, and they can be listened to the same way that adults are learning to listen to children more attentively, that could change the whole culture of education. So. Thanks, Janet. And I don't know, Martin, if you want to say something about the role of business and tech as a principle, what would you like to see from business and, Money. and from technologists? <laughs> I know, I know it's the old cliché, but uh, uh, there's a potential firestorm coming in, 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 in particularly in the inner city, where you, you're going to have budget cuts, um, teacher shortages. Uh, if we're going to be, if we, if we're serious about trying to make sure that we are able to do the kind of and, and, and impact in the way that the report would like us to impact, then making sure that teachers have space and time to innovate is crucial. And you can't do that without being creative with your staffing, and that costs money. Um, so that's something I'd be very concerned about. Now, obviously, one, one, one business group is not going to be able to help out but in that particular way. But there is, there is, there is a funding issue that, that concerns me as a school leader, that, I, that I've got to be able to give people that space. And there's lots of creative ways I can do that. But at the end of the day, it will come down to funding in the end, and that's, that's, that's something that concerns me. Thank you. I'll take uh, three more questions. I'm Angus Jenkinson. I'm from the Centre for Thinking Futures. Uh, thank you very much. That was interesting. And the fifth largest cause of death in America is apparently iatrogenesis. It's better known as the cure that kills. It's medical problems that actually cause people to end up dying. And you've been describing, I think, reforms that deform in education. And I also get the sense that quite a lot of that is because people who are not really connected to teachers on the ground and the real world don't know what's going on, and they end up giving abstract solutions that don't provide solutions. Could you give us just a few very concrete, practical examples, non-abstract, that we could actually see, we could visualize and imagine about what you're, prepared, you're recommending, what would it look like on the ground okay. in the real world? Great, thank you. Hi, um, my name is James Glass. I'm a primary teacher of, uh, I guess, 13 years' experience. Um, I'm very interested in what the panel has said about this... Uh, I, I guess I, I, I view it as almost a fear culture we seem to be... Uh, creating, uh, particularly, I'm, I'm English, so I'm speaking from, from, from the UK perspective. 
And I worry that we're getting a situation almost where the, the, uh, the, the teacher fears the head of department, the head of department fears the uh, deputy head, the deputy head fears the head, the head fears the governors, the governors fear the, uh, the prime minister. It's that basic old-fashioned vertical, and it's having a devastating impact on teacher morale. Um, I set up a, uh, a campaign at change.org called uh, um, Save Childhood and Give Us Back Our Education, uh, basically because I've been so horrified at the number of teachers that have burned out in this country because of the insane levels of pressure on them. I, I don't know how many teachers there are. There are various figures bounded around, but I reckon you could probably fill the O2 and Wembley Stadium with burned-out teachers from this kind of, in a sense, insane bureaucracy. Uh, um, so I, it's great to think that actually <laughs> I'm, I'm not on my own here and people are thinking along the same, same lines. But okay. where we go... I think one last thing I would say is... <laughs> What's it all about, education? I think if we lose our sense of humanity, then we're doomed. It, it, it's all about humanity and compassion. Thank you. Thanks for that comment. We have um, two questions in the back, and then I'll take one last question from the corner in the left for this round. Um, hi, my name's Natasha Palladino. I'm uh, in my third year now of teaching at School 21, so I work for an incredibly innovative um, school, and I'm kind of at the chalk face, as it were. Um, my question leads on from question number one. Um, I go home, and Martin, what you said, it really resonated me with, with teachers going home and feeling like uh, they haven't done enough. Um, what would my week look like if what you guys are proposing, that we were teachers at the centre of the research-driven um, kind of system? How would my week look different to it does now? Next yeah. to you, yeah. Um, I'm former... I'm Carl Littlefield, former high-tech high teacher, current project-based learning coach at Innovation Unit and future teacher at RSA Academy in Tipton. Um, and I think at, at high tech, we had what Martin was talking about. We had that protected environment that allowed us to innovate, and I haven't seen that yet in any school in the UK. So what can we do um, to help create that for teachers? Because some of our most innovative teachers in real projects are leaving the profession because they don't have that supporting culture to be able to do it. Uh, hi, my name's Alistair Falk. Uh, I work in Birmingham. Um, as director of partnerships for a school-led uh, system organisation uh, called the Birmingham Education Partnership. And that's my question. Uh, it's kind of around levers for change, um, particularly around uh, school-led systems. I just want to say a couple of things, you know, skim-reading the report, um, just to perhaps, uh, and I think we've probably heard it from Martin, to put some hope back into the system. Um, the report calls for leadership, which is authentic conviction about the potential for education as humanity's best hope. I think there are an awful lot of head teachers out there who have that authentic um, conviction. In fact, in my experience, most great head teachers are people who get the system, work the system, but fundamentally don't believe in the system. And I'm interested the report doesn't make any reference, as far as I can see, to that other great emergence internationally, which is about school-led systems. That, it seems to me, takes you to number nine of the possible next steps. And the assumption in the report does seem to me, just glancing at it, is a lot of it is about individual teachers kind of scaling up. But it seems to me there's a huge amount of accumulator wisdom in the system which is now emerging in terms of school-led systems and a greater understanding from them perhaps is needed about the role of the rest of the public sector. I take on board the reference to change in the health service made right at the beginning. So my question really is, 
who are the people who should be working with those new school-led systems to put system entrepreneurship at the heart of this new emerging system leadership? Thank you. Um, let me start with um, by asking David to respond to the call for more sort of practical examples of <laughs> innovation that works. Oh, good, thank you. I thought I'd get the easy question. <laughs> um, well, all I can say about that is, is that one of the great privileges of um, working in a faculty of education in Cambridge is that we are surrounded by very highly qualified, very capable, uh, brilliant teachers at all levels of the system. And one of the things we've certainly been leading for many years now are, um, I, think, I think before um, the, new, the new kind of um, school collaborations were set up, uh, we've, um, you know, lead schools and so forth, We've, we've always worked with groups of schools, individual schools, to help and support them in driving their own research agenda. And I do think this is, um, I do think this is absolutely central to enhancing the quality of education at all levels, the status of teachers, teacher morale. All of these things, I think, would be enormously enhanced if teachers were, were given the time and space um, and the you know and the and the support to engage in in their own research in their own reflection upon their own practice the way the school is organised um, and so on and um, uh, one of the keys uh, to to this um, you know, obviously we've supported a lot of um, action research type of projects but one of the things that I think also has been mentioned quite a, a bit in a number of these different reports, is, um, is the notion of pupil voice. Um, uh, we had a professor who sadly died now within the faculty, uh, Professor Jean Ruddock, who some, her work may be familiar with to some of you, but she really pioneered um, getting, uh, establishing systems within schools, both at the primary and secondary level, where Children, the children, the pupils, the, the recipients, the clients, if you like, of the whatever was happening in the school, really had a genuine say, not just, you know, uh, for some fairly superficial involvement in school council, but had a genuine say and a genuine systems within the school so that um, the children's perspective on things... Jean wrote a wonderful book. It was called... Uh, it was a quote from a particular 12-year-old uh, boy that she interviewed once as part of her work. And um, his statement was, school's great, apart from the lessons. Uh, <laughs> in other words, he loved school because that's where he met his mates and you know, had lots of social things going on and all the rest of it. And actually really liked, really liked the teachers but found the, what was being offered very boring. And, she, and, and often, I think, um, uh, you know, We've talked a lot this evening about the disconnect between the politicians and what's happening at, at the chalk face and the reality and how little understanding they have and the dire consequence of that. But actually often within a school, I think it's really important that the, that the teachers have a very clear idea of the way it's being received by the children. So that's certainly one thing um, yeah. that, uh, that we've been doing. Can I just offer a couple of quick suggestions um, You know, to the earlier question about how, how do we work with politicians? Um, 
my own feeling is two, there's two possible things here we can do. One is I do think that the, the impact of the PISA um, uh, tables in particular has been enormously um, damaging and politicians all over the world um, are constructing school systems that are all entirely about getting their 15-year-olds to be able to pass tests at PISA. In fact, I think Shanghai came out top last time and the Minister for Education in Shanghai actually said himself, he said, we're very good at getting children to pass PISA tests. He said, actually, we're not providing them, however, with a very good um, education and we're particularly poor at uh, supporting their well-being. So I think, you know, the loss of this is recognised and within the, within the system. However, I, I'm inclined to think that we're never going to persuade politicians to do the right thing in this regard because we're interested in long-term outcomes and politicians are precisely interested in, in the opposite. Um, it, within the UK, there is a very strong movement towards establishing a national teaching teachers' council. And I actually think we, we need to have a... We need to have something like that in place that, put, that puts teachers and head teachers in charge of the curriculum that supports research initiatives within the profession and so on. I think that has to be uh, one element anyway in a, in a way forward on all of this. Thanks, David. If I can um, just very quickly turn to Asma and really to address the, the comment on the fear and the uncertainty yeah. that's in the system. I know you came across that in your research in, in Qatar, yeah. that many of the teachers were feeling demotivated yeah. and demoralized and just perhaps just share a few sure. insights into, um, into your thinking about what to do about that. Sure. Um, I just want to emphasize um, on the point uh, Martin mentioned about providing space for innovation. And I'm talking from the perspective of... I started my career as a... Um, teacher, as a physics teacher, then head of department. So what do we mean by space for um, innovation? Um, part of, uh, of that, I think, um, looking at the administration part of teacher's uh, um, role. So trying to, we, talking about creating conditions, so avoiding workload, avoiding um, bureaucracy, um, um, that will um, help them to balance between their life responsibilities and their jobs uh, requirement. Um, so focusing on how work-life balance will, uh, will support them. Um, again, um, uh, looking at the space for innovation, um, also teachers need... Um, um, knowledge and um, improving their skills. If we are talking about, for example, assessment for learning. Um, so to expect teachers be away from the uh, pencil and paper test, we need to support them uh, in helping them to improve their skills on how to assess um, for learning, not to assess of uh, learning. So it's, it's more about supporting their um, capacity building in terms of skills, knowledge, subject knowledge, but also from the administration side uh, to avoid workload and unnecessary um, uh, tasks that take them from um, teaching and learning in the classroom. 
Martin, if I can turn to you now just to address this issue of what would a teacher-centered um, school week look like and, and some of the things that you do to protect your teachers, as you, as you uh, uh, well, I, mentioned I, in your remarks. I bend the rules as far as I possibly can. Um, uh, well, I, I think that's the key. Uh, the, the morale of the staff, the staff, whether they're teachers or adults working with children, whatever, the, the morale in the institution is absolutely key. Um, and it can take many years to build up that kind of rapport with employees in, in, your, in, your, in your school, but it can take only a matter of weeks for that to be destroyed. And I think you often see that happen when leadership teams change or a school uh, gets into trouble because its outcomes take a massive dip or there's a, there's a rogue often inspector that takes a dislike to the school. We've all heard of these horror stories, but whatever... My, my, my view is that the, the, the key role of a leadership team is to make sure that the morale of the staff is as high as it possibly can be in the circumstances, and there are lots of ways in which you can do that. Um, but it often involves bending the rules, innovating, uh, in a sense, from a, from a management or leadership point of view, uh, giving people more time off than they would normally get, giving people more holidays than they're entitled to, um, making sure that uh, your, your, your human resources policy or your team that work with your, with your staff uh, are sympathetic and they're aware of making sure that people's self-esteem is, is challenged but it's not destroyed. I mean, we, we tend to focus a lot on what... Many schools tend to focus a lot on well-being of students and that is very, very important, but well-being of staff is just as important. Uh, you're not going to have a happy school if you don't have a happy staff. You're not going to have happy students if you don't have a happy staff. Now, and that sounds like a terrible cliche in a sense, but it's, it's something that, that, that sometimes leaders lose, lose focus on because of the external pressures that they face uh, and they're not able to deal with. I, I've, got a, Alistair, I've, got a, I've got a problem with system leadership a little, um, and I think you probably know why, but I, 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 I feel system leadership is a term that that has been devised because there aren't enough head teachers and principals around. Um, I, I really believe that it's, it's up to individual leadership teams in individual schools to make sure they're looking after the individuals who work in those institutions without looking anywhere else for help. I think you've got to be brave, uh, and I think what I like about this report, it gives me a little bit more encouragement to be brave, to be, to be innovative, but my, my, my whole... My whole drive will be to make sure I'm looking after the staff so that the incubator programme is a healthy one. Thank you. Um, Joe, Valerie, do you want to address the issue of school-led uh, systems and who should be involved in that system-level leadership? Maybe either to support what Martin says or... I support everything Martin says. <laughs> I always have done, always will do. Uh, so many rich questions there. I'm going to half answer quite a few of them and then hopefully you'll harass me uh, when we have a drink later about them. The fear point, I've got no answer to that, but what I see certainly in English schools is the fear is driven partly by uncertainty. You just don't know quite what results you're going to get. You don't quite know what inspector you're going to get. And that uncertainty is not a good platform to try things differently. So it's, it's a kind of subtle form of fear. Uh, in terms of practical, that is a really fair question. I'll just, I'll just give a couple of examples uh, on assessment, the most interesting example we saw 
well, I heard about during the research was the citizen-based assessment uh, programmes that were going on in Nigeria and in, in certain Indian states, which really brought parents and the community into the assessment process, a really good practical example with very limited resources. The other example I want to give that hasn't yet happened in terms of teacher innovation capabilities, uh, RSA Academies has a teaching school alliance and from September we'll be training our own teachers that has a research module attached to that, like many teacher training programmes, but they're giving us that module to develop a programme in design thinking for student teachers as as a different kind of research and I think that really could lead to a very practical form of innovation that supports teachers. Uh, The question about what would my week look like that's difficult, but I, in imagining what your term might look like instead, which I think is fairer, I think over the course of the term, you would have had the space to try out a new idea uh, that, uh, and also to make sure that that idea was done not just by yourself but with others, whether it's others within the school or others beyond. Uh, if it had appeared to be promising or working, it would have been de- developed further. If it hadn't been seen to be promising or working, you wouldn't be penalised. In fact, your performance management would somehow celebrate that failure in some way. Uh, Finally, on school improving system and so on, I believe in the capacity of a school improving system. My worry in the context of England is at the moment we have a system of school improvement and a self-improving school system that isn't allowed to determine in its own outcomes. And my view is that self-improvement without some element of self-determination won't achieve as much as it could. Thank you, Joe. Valerie, any parting thoughts, closing remarks? Parting thoughts, yes, I will. I'd come back to the practical point too. Um, uh, we've got Cara Littlefield here tonight from High Tech High. If you want to get a, a sense of what this, pra- this kind of learning that we're talking about really looks like in practice, talk to Cara. Or catch a look, if you can, at a movie which has just been released called Most Likely to Succeed. Um, it's going to be a show on at the Barbican in April. Um, most likely to succeed, looks at why it is that current schooling systems are failing young people who cannot succeed with a kind of dumbing down almost that the the current systemic conditions create and looks at High Tech High, which is a a group of schools, mostly in California but elsewhere too, which has a completely different approach and which does impact actually on how, how weeks look. Weeks look different because people chop up time differently. They use time to go deeply into questions um, and not a drip feed of 40 minutes. They allow teachers to work in teams collaboratively and developing profound projects, as indeed School 21 does, and it's great that someone from School 21 is here. A free school, but which demonstrating practically how in the constrained conditions of the UK, amazing things are possible. I'm going to end on a kind of discordant note, um, because, Martin, much though I respect what you said about leadership in schools... I think there is a need for system leadership because we are systems, we are societies and I don't believe it's right that we should move forward on a basis of schools being entirely uh, atomised islands without connection to each other. So again, if you want a practical example of what that might look like, if you get a look at our reports, you'll see a programme based in Australia called Learning Frontiers and Learning Frontiers is actually sponsored by a government-funded organisation, the Australian Institute for Teaching and School Leadership. And they have sponsored a series of hubs around the country of collaboratives of schools working together to say, how can we innovate so that our learning is more engaging, more personalised, more authentic, more connected and more integrated? 
How can we develop the classroom practice that does that? And they're working as collaboratives to do it. And in so doing, they're innovating on behalf of the system. It's our point seven, really. So I don't believe in atomized schools as islands. I do believe in system leadership. Um, but it's a kind of being led by schools. They're part of the debate, but I think all of society has got something to say about it. It's, what's that old adage, you know, education is too important just to be left to schools. Thank you, Valerie. And um, if I could just add to that, what motivated, I think, the writing of this report, um, at least from a wise perspective, was uh, the realisation, actually, that we had a lot of examples of successful innovation happening in islands, as you put it, uh, Valerie. But what was frustrating us was trying to understand why it was that these um, pockets of excellence weren't spreading. And, and I think the important contribution that this report is, is trying to make, and I think um, we've, we've made a good start, is in trying to explain what are the conditions necessary for innovations to, to scale. And I think that's really what we're trying to get at. We're trying to understand what are the best practices, what do we need to do to deliver the education system um, that we feel our societies deserve, and to make sure that that really percolates um, throughout the system and is not just limited to islands and pockets of excellence. Um, we've run out of time, um, so please join me in thanking... Uh, Joe, thanking Valerie, thanking our panelists. Um, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not download our free app to access video and audio files on the go? Just visit our website, the rsa.org, and follow the links to the RSA Vision mobile app.